the COVID-19 pandemic struck, digital connections were indispensable. For education, social interactions, telemedicine, business continuity, and so much more. But in places where connectivity is limited, the challenges and tragedies of the pandemic were only heightened. This was especially true in Native American communities across America, where infection rates soared, economic opportunity fell, and for many, isolation deepened. This is Kevin Delaney for Cisco TechBee. I spoke with Tracy Morris, director of the American Indian Policy Institute at Arizona State University, where she studied the impact of the digital divide in Indian country. A proud member of the Chickasaw Nation, Dr. Morris is troubled by the continuing challenges facing her people. But at a time when society is waking up to the profound effects of systemic racism and neglect, and companies like Cisco are pledging to use their technology to power a more inclusive future, her real-world solutions toward bridging the digital divide are especially welcome. Not just to move past the pandemic, but to fully unleash the creativity and entrepreneurial spirit of the Native American community. And of course, the digital divide isn't limited to America. For another perspective, we've included insights from Emma Broadbent of Cisco Networking Academy about her efforts to raise technology skills among the native peoples of Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So wonderful to have you, Tracy. Um, It's a pleasure. There's obviously a deeply rooted history of systemic neglect towards tribal communities across the U.S. Is the digital divide continuing that history? Absolutely. Uh, The digital divide has been a part of my work for such a long time. It is systemic exclusion. Now, there's been some changes recently where we've been able to have a seat at the table with the um, uh, with the Federal Communications Commission and such, but we're not solving these problems in a really quick manner. So it's hard to actually wrap it up into a really short practice, but the reality is, you know, Indian country is vast. Um, Indian country is this area that um, it's wide open. It's not easy to connect. It takes a myriad of technologies to even get across it. Uh, we're not connected in a meaningful way right now. And to actually solve that divide and be ubiquitous, like, like say, plain old telephone service, it would take an investment beyond the market strategies that we're using now, because bang for the buck isn't going to solve Indian country. Because folks aren't going to want to serve one household when they can go elsewhere and serve 50 households. It's just, um, it's just not going to happen that way. But we've had a lot of success with tribally driven um, initiatives and individual tribes uh, with um, leapfrogging different technologies together and such. um, But now really, years ago, we talked about it as a digital divide. And I'd say now we really talk about it more as digital divides, plural, because it's not just um, not connected. It's poorly connected. It's marginally connected. It's access, use, and availability. There's a a generational gaps in understanding the technology. There's so many more nuances to the the digital divide at this point. Could you describe some of the specific ways in which the digital divide manifests itself in tribal communities? Absolutely. So there's a couple of few stats from a study we put out in the fall at the American Indian Policy Institute. 18% of tribal residents have no access 
at home, wireless or land-based. And 33% are relying on internet from a smartphone at home. But as we all know, the reliability of smartphone internet, we can say it's questionable, but that's a polite way of saying, you know, if you've ever driven down the highway, you know how there's pockets of connectivity and not. Imagine having to do all your work or all your connectivity on a smartphone. And 31% of respondents in Indian country said that their connection was spotty in terms of cellular connection, if they had it at all. So that's just in a short nutshell um, how how the digital divide is impacting Indian country. Of course, there's 574 distinct tribal nations in the country, 330 plus um, tribal reservations or tri- former tribal lands. But the reality is these areas are are extremely rural, so they're not going to be the the places on the on the interstate that have connectivity. So imagine we've all seen the stories now of folks, you know, doing homework uh, in a parking lot somewhere, or a buses driving into communities with Wi-Fi hotspots. You know, you can't even in some of these tribal reservations you can't drive a bus to the area and do a Wi-Fi hotspot because there's not enough service to even hop that signal out on a bus. So these are some of the direct the direct impacts of um, of the digital divide and how it manifests itself in Indian country. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit Native communities particularly hard. How has the digital divide exacerbated what was already a disproportionate impact? Oh, this one was such a hard one for me. I'm not, I won't sugarcoat it. I was really angry that first couple of weeks because I couldn't believe that it took a pandemic, a global pandemic to draw attention to what myself and so many other advocates have been saying for 10 or more years about the lack of connectivity in tribal and rural areas. It's just that bad. And so when when it hit, when, when COVID hit and we were all forced to go home, of course, I worked at a university, a really major university, and we're a pretty connected university. We've got an online segment, and then we have our in-person students. But it was apparent very quickly how many of our tribal students, we have the largest tribal population in the university in the country, over 3,000 students. It became real apparent real quick how many of those students were either going to drop out of class drop out of school. We couldn't even reach them to confirm if they were okay, let alone whether or not they had connectivity. We, we had to implement a process by which we systematically called them. We, we created a, there was a group that I worked with. They created a task force immediately within the first week and started calling all those students. Some of them they called three times in the first month just to confirm they were okay, where they were situated, they had food to eat, and whether or not they could continue in school, what did they need? And then our technology office started running hotspots to the folks that we could identify had cell signals. We literally loaned them equipment to get them connected so they could continue. But we heard stories about, you know, kids losing their grandparents, both of them on the same weekend or things like this. So it was, it's been, any country has been particularly hit by the covid you all have probably heard about what happened, what's happening up at Navajo Nation and some of the Pueblo um, nations in New Mexico, and it's been very real. So the lack of infrastructure to not even be able to call your family or to choose to leave school to be with your family has been driven home in a way that 
it, it's very disturbing. It's hard to put into words, and it's hard to talk about it clinically and not be upset by it. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's been a real tragedy. Often, tribal communities lack basic infrastructure for for broadband, which is our main subject today, but even for electricity and water in some places. And you you, you touched on some of the kind of short-term solutions, you know, buses coming in with Wi-Fi and such. And you also talked about the uh, the service providers and how they overlook some of these areas. But what are some of your ideas for tackling the situation, short-term or long-term? Well, there have been folks that have really been, um, really reached out. I mean, certainly, like I said, the at the universities, the technology offices have been particularly responsive and um, in terms of reaching out to their students. Also here in Arizona with the Navajo Nation, the Navajo Technical University and Navajo Community College has been working with one of the university in Flagstaff, North, Northern Arizona University, to hop signals out to these places. But the reality is a temporary Wi-Fi signal, 4G, when everybody's hopping on that with a computer is going to be problematic at best. It'll be, it's a good short-term fix. What we really need is better infrastructure being built out. And that is happening. There are groups that are working to run redundant lines through from California all the way into Texas and then up and down in Arizona and in Colorado to try and, try and create these redundant networks so that there is that base um, line in or a line that folks can tap into with the other technologies. So you can have, you know, that you can have that wired line, and then folks can hop with with, with different um, types of signals to get to these more remote places. Right, that's a really great start, and there are companies and organizations working on that. We also have a, a window right now with the Federal Communications Commission. It's a 2.5 gigahertz tribal priority window. It's been open since February and closes the first week of August, and this is an opportunity for tribes to own the 2.5 gigahertz spectrum over their tribal lands, and has a it has a build-out requirement, but it can be met pretty reasonably with different types of technology. So that is a huge opportunity for tribes that's right now happening in the middle of all of this, where tribes can uh, own their own spectrum and create their own networks. And of course, there are tribes who have their own um, networks as well. And so there's a lot of resiliency in Indian country around this, and there's a lot of groundswell happening as well. But as long as you have community buy-in, leadership buy-in, and, and such, solutions are being found to start bridging, at least getting signals into the main community. Folks aren't going to necessarily get it at their home for probably a long time, unfortunately. But getting a good community signal in besides, you know, just some, some and when we did our survey, some folks were saying, hey, we got a T1 line. We're great. <laughs> you can't even do standardized testing in high school on a T1 line. But um, it's starting to happen. It takes, it takes time. It takes a building of expertise and knowledge in Indian country. But it's coming. Building that tech expertise in neglected places in the U.S. and around the world is a chief concern of Cisco's Networking Academy. 
which has transformed the lives of learners, educators, and communities in 180 countries through the power of education and career opportunities. Networking Academy is designed to be used by anyone, anywhere, across a wide variety of skill levels, with the ultimate goal of making IT a more inclusive space globally. In a separate conversation, Emma Broadbent of Cisco Australia New Zealand spoke of the company's efforts to draw in, connect, and educate indigenous peoples in her region. These efforts have included donations of equipment and laptops, reach outs to schools and universities in indigenous areas, and learnathon competitions to spur interest in Net Academy's opportunities. Here's Emma. From the Net Academy perspective, it's very hard for us to find uh, the actual metrics of how many um, First Nation students are in our academy program, but we, we tend to try and find that out anecdotally um, and work on initiatives focused in the uh, various states in Australia in particular that have a higher Indigenous population and work on um, bringing them into our program through competitions or through activities and things like that. So you're always very conscious of it and, and being very aware that this, this is a gap um, and we try and look at a Cisco level how, how we can do that. And we've got a competition coming up at the end of the month um, in Western Australia, the state of Western Australia, which um, I, I chose specifically for that reason to try and use a school that was a pathway technology school whose focus is on bringing First Nation Indigenous learners into their area, and we've been able to work with them on, on an initiative there. As in the United States and other countries, Cisco has been doubling down on its commitment to extend connectivity to neglected regions of Australia through new partnerships with telcos and universities, while also donating equipment like WebEx collaboration tools to support remote learning and telehealth. In addition, Emma mentioned a partnership to extend connectivity and education to the indigenous peoples of Papua New Guinea. The International Telecommunications Union is doing a lot of work around the world to bridge the digital divide. We at Cisco are partnering with them on digital literacy programs in countries such as Papua New Guinea. And here's Tracy Morris again on some next steps in bridging the digital divide. Are you watching next generation technologies like 5G? What do you see as the potential for enabling communities to leapfrog some of their limitations in the more traditional infrastructure? Seeing other leapfrogs, not necessarily 5G, but leapfrogs of using TV white spaces, which are unregulated spectrum, or like I say, this 2.5 gigahertz spectrum could be a big boon. So we're definitely in Indian country um, all about leapfrogging limitations in different ways. There's a tremendous creativity and entrepreneurial spirit among the Native peoples along with extremely rich traditions of storytelling and spirituality, how can broadband connectivity unleash all that in new ways? Oh, good grief. It already is and already has been. Um, with um, It's been fascinating, though, to watch with the pandemic how folks have responded. So there is, for example, an art market happened. This would have been the 100th year in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Santa Fe Indian market. Hundredth year, they've been selling Indian art on the plaza there. Um, it's not going to happen this year. It will happen. I take that back. It's, it's going to virtually happen. It is going to be a different kind of art market where you can't go to the booth and buy the art. But um, a lot of artists are just taking their art online. 
I'm seeing things every day. Artists are, are marketing directly, whether it's mostly on Facebook and Instagram. We have to remember Indian country is about 50%, arguably, under under 30, and another significant population under 18. We're a young population, and, you know, we're not immune to the Internet. We're, um, we were early adopters. A former study that I worked on found that we were adopting Internet and, and new technologies at rates higher than our counterparts in the larger society. So we've been early adopters. We we're out there on Etsy, Facebook, Instagram, selling art, telling stories. We've always been innovative and early adopters of new technology. Way, even way back, we had some of the first radio shows, believe it or not, um, talk radio, 1904, Oklahoma. But that's part of, um, I think, you know, if you don't adapt, you don't survive, right? Online learning creates a lot of challenges, but do you see any advantages if online learning can develop in, in some communities to a greater extent? Actually, I have. We have seen here at ASU uh, a really good response to the introduction of online learning systems. So we have a pretty robust um, online school university, and we've just started to introduce some of the tribal programs. But I know that our population is almost doubled, and it's mainly due to online students. So it, that's the native population at the school. So that's a pretty significant thing. If folks can learn in their own community and be a part of it, you know, when, when I went to school, you know, everybody talked about how there was no jobs on reservations. You couldn't go back to your reservation once you got a college education because there was no place for you. There just wasn't the kind of robust infrastructure for business and such at the time. And so tribes always talked about how can we bring our kids back after they've gotten a degree, what kind of businesses do we need to have, et cetera. Now somebody doesn't necessarily have to leave their home to get the education and continue with whatever job they're working on. It's it's a huge game changer. And it's a huge game changer in terms of um, keeping communities intact and not dispersing them. Like in so many other things, it's been pushed along by the pandemic and we've had to make it work. And now we're making it work in a really predominant and um, positive way. So I do think it will um, only continue to equalize the playing field if we can cross the divide well enough for folks to do this. Because it's one thing to be able to go to school online. If you're doing it on a phone or a tablet and you're, you know, loading some digitally intensive material in a classroom, you know, video and such, you have an issue there. So, you know, there's things to be worked out, but if we do it, it's gonna, it could be a great equalizer. Yeah, and along similar lines, um, access to health care is another major problem that's come into focus during this current crisis with the pandemic. To what extent can telehealth close that gap? Well, I think when the Internet was started, I don't think we foresaw, or at least the larger public, how much it would impact our life, how much broadband and connectivity is, is a utility in our lives. So if you think about it in, in that term, it's going to change everything. Education, we knew it would. Education energy, water, you name it. And healthcare is one of the areas we knew right away it could help in the country with. Certainly with telehealth, it can help. I mean, if you don't have doctors in your area, 
We need better connectivity in our homes in order for that to happen. Now, I do think they're doing some of that work at like chapter houses. I'm not positive at Navajo where folks can go to a central area and get connectivity and then they can telehealth in. If we had great connectivity in our homes, we wouldn't have to, you know, have the office visits and that would, you know, that would be a huge help. But like I said, until we've got more of a ubiquitous coverage in our homes in Indian country, we're not going to have as much of an advantage. We're experiencing a lot of soul searching in the country right now around the deep wounds of racism. Do you see any cause for optimism for the Native peoples during what is a pretty painful time for for the whole country? I'm always an optimist and but you got to go through it to get there. How's that? Does that make sense? You got to go through the process to get to the optimistic side. We have to recognize what what has happened. Um, our histories have to be have to be reconciled and recognized in order for you know systemic change to happen. So I think that the the opt. I mean, there's been a lot of support. I mean, I can't say everybody supported it, but certainly I've seen an awful lot of support of what, you know, what's been happening out there in Indian country. A lot of us, a lot of folks have been saying, you know, well, yeah, that's been happening. But in Indian country, we're right up there with with blacks in terms of our treatment by the police, same percentage points almost. So we have the same issues in Indian country. So I hope that as we, as we reconcile this, uh, you know, this racial divide and reconcile these histories as all a part of our histories, not, you know, it's all a part of our history in America. I hope that that will bring more light to issues with Indian country, issues like missing and murdered indigenous women and such, which is a statistical thing. We aren't even tracking these things. I do hope that it does continue to shine more light so that we can reconcile these histories as part of a painful part of America, but at the same time, we're all a part of America. So I'm cautiously optimistic. So, you know, just to close, in terms of that um, cautious optimism that you just expressed, we have a lot of daunting challenges ahead, God knows. But there are exciting technologies on the horizon, and many of them promise to connect people in new ways. And our company, Cisco, is pledging to use those technologies to power a more inclusive future. It's, re- it's really at the heart of, uh, of our initiative moving forward. But, you know, in a more general sense, what is your best case scenario for future change among the Native peoples? The best case scenario, I think, being visible being visible, seeing our stories on podcasts that aren't just native podcasts like this, seeing our stories in major papers and and those stories moving from that of a noble downtrodden people to the stories of the resilience that we, you know, that we have, that, that we are still here, that we are handling things, but there are things that we need, we still are owed because of our federal treaty relationship with the United States. I think as we become just part of the visible population, no longer invisible, that's the biggest part. That's the hope that I have is that we're visible now and we're part of America and that folks don't see us as somebody from the past, but see us as 
you know, part of the fabric of the United States. Digital technologies and connectivity are a big part of making that happen, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. That's why I work in this area. Absolutely. We have the power through these technologies to tell our own stories, to make our own representations, which is what takes me back to the beginning of my story. We can tell our own stories in our own words, in our own language. We can tell it to ourselves, to our communities, and to the world. And that is the power of the technology. Cisco's Emma Broadbent concluded with her own thoughts on improving the lives of indigenous peoples in Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. And Mind Simple, Kevin, is opportunity for education across the board. For, you know, the ones who are remotely challenged with where they live, um, their, their health, um, there's just so many factors that um, are a adversity for them. Um, so that, that's what I would like to see. This is Kevin Delaney for Cisco Tech Beat. My very special thanks to Dr. Tracy Morris for a fascinating and very moving discussion, and also to Cisco's Emma Broadbent for some great additional insights from Down Under. If you'd like to hear more Cisco Tech Beat podcasts, subscribe through your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to leave a comment. We'd love to start a discussion.